thank you for that wonderful reminder that you're risen, you're Lord, you're seated on the right hand of the Father. We thank you for your word, and your word is alive and active, and even this uh, morning. We pray that we won't just be passengers, that through your spirit you would uh, change us, transform us through your word, and make us to know you more. Pray for Andy as he preaches your word, that you empower him through your spirit. We pray this all for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd really love this to work this week. All right. While she battles Apple and Microsoft and the discussion between them, uh, I'm going to remind us where we went last week. So last week, uh, you remember this, uh, these two chapters, chapter 13 and 14 in the book of Acts. If you've got a Bible, uh, open, swipe, flick, whatever you need to do to get there. Um, this was Paul's first missionary journey. He and Barnabas have gone out from Antioch, which is in what we know as Syria. Uh, they've gone across to the island of Cyprus. They've gone through Cyprus up into what we now know as Turkey. Uh, they've gone inland and then they went back the way they came. And we had a few takeaways from uh, the journey and what we saw uh, with them on that journey. Uh, first of all, as they went, they were sent by the Holy Spirit. And we know that uh, we already know what God's will is for us. It's given to us in God's word. We have it here. We have it here. Uh, if you're wondering what God's, God's will is for you, uh, I suggest you start there. There's over a thousand answers um, to that question, what is God's will for my life? Secondly, we learned that God has a mission for us and that actually you and I, as part of God's church, are on mission together. It's not just me doing my thing and wondering what you're doing over there. Actually, we have a together mission and that is to share the gospel and as we measure and reflect on whether our church is good or bad or what we think of our church we ought to be asking ourselves that question how are we going with the mission the actual mission sharing the gospel and we reminded ourselves that that the message is not us we're not the message we're the messengers but the message is the gospel and so it's more than just living good lives in front of other people, actually they need to hear the words of the message from us. We were reminded that mission involves strategy and that we need to be wise about choosing how we make the most of the opportunities that are here, not just for our church but also for ourselves individually. God has opportunities for me. You are the best. Oh, look at that. Okay, there's, that's where they are. Uh, and so God has, um, has a, uh, a mission for us. We need to be wise about the opportunities that we use. And then lastly, we heard that the gospel was oozing out of them. These guys were so excited by the message that they had. And I'm going to flick through here. Oh, there's, there's that guy who was uh, spirit-led to go to the Super Bowl instead of help the poor. Uh, The gospel was oozing out of them. They were so excited about it, they couldn't not talk about it. Just like I can't stop talking about caravans. That's a Jayco 1649-1 Outback edition. I can tell you all about it. But am I that excited about the gospel? That's the question. Do I have that kind of passion that when someone says, Jesus, God, the Bible, tell me what's the whole deal? 
do I come out with that kind of passion or do I put my academia hat on and say, well, let me tell you why you're a sinner. I actually need to be excited. My heart needs to be overflowing with this message and that's a work of God to change my heart in that way. This week, yeah, I've never had my slides in this way before. It's kind of cool. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about opposition and we're going to talk about two kinds of opposition, two events uh, that take place in this mission. One, while uh, they're here in Cyprus, that little island there, that green, uh, and one event that happens in Turkey. And these guys are going to read for us those two events. Thanks, guys. Okay, so we'll start in Acts 13, 6 to 12. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia and then sailed for the the island of Cyprus. There in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogue and preached the word of God. John Mark went with them as their assistant. Afterward, they traveled from town to town across the entire island until finally they reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. The governor invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him, for he wanted to hear the word of God. But, oh, sorry, but Elamas the sorcerer um, interfered and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit And he looked the sorcerer in the eye. Then he said, You son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud, an enemy of all that is good, will you never stop perverting the truth, uh, the, the true ways of the Lord? Watch now, for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you, and you will be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for some time. Instantly, mist and darkness came over the man's eyes, and he began groping around, begging for someone to take his hand and lead him. When the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer, for he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. Um, and I'll be reading from Acts fourteen eight to 18. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith, to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw um, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple um, was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, Yet he did not leave himself without witness, but he did good by giving you rains from heavens and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. 
even those words they scarcely restrained people from offering sacrifice to them. Aren't they so fantastic? In these verses, we sample the opposition that Paul and Barnabas faced as they went about their first journey. This is not the only times that they faced opposition, but on these two occasions, they face specific, direct trouble, things that are getting in the way of their message. And Paul and Barnabas have gone from one, island, one side of the island of uh, Cyprus, Salamis, Salami, uh, across to the other side of the island. And they've probably been evangelising all the way through. But we don't get all the stories of the island of Cyprus. We don't get everything that happened there. We get Luke concentrating on one specific event, the conversion of this Roman proconsul. And, uh, and it happens uh, across this. So they land on that right-hand side there and they move across to the left. Salamis across to Paphos. Cyprus is under Roman rule like a whole lot of other places uh, in the uh, area right now. And it's ruled by a proconsul. Now, a proconsul is a Roman ruler who is not a military commander. So Cyprus is a place that the Romans are in charge and they're governing without military force. So this is not that kind of real oppression... Uh, violence, threats to your um, safety, no soldiers telling you to carry their pack for a mile and all that sort of stuff. That's the stuff they had going on in Jerusalem and in in Israel. Not so here. And hearing that they've come to town, uh, probably because he's got the finger on the pulse of the capital, the proconsul sends for Paul and Barnabas. Why? Because he wants to hear the word of God. Kind of ironic, isn't it? He actually wants to hear the word of God. Now, as part of his entourage of advisors, uh, these governors were uh, well known to have gathered around themselves uh, people who could give them counsel, uh, both local knowledge and also other kinds of knowledge and advice. This proconsul, who we're told is an intelligent man, he has a Jewish sorcerer who's also labelled as a false prophet. And he's most likely some kind of astrologer. Uh, someone who uh, the proconsul seeks advice from when he wants to know uh, the future or he wants some spiritual input. What does this dream mean? Uh, What should I do? What do the stars say? What's in my future? Will this turn out well? Will this turn out poorly? Etc. There's multiple levels of irony in this setup. First of all, you've got a Jewish sorcerer and it's kind of like saying a Christian atheist. They seem irreconcilable together. Um, and, and that becomes uh, more and more apparent as the story goes on. Secondly, the guy's name is Bar-Jesus, which actually means son of Jesus or son of, uh, uh, son of the Lord saves. You know, it's, it's kind of um, a name that you would choose for someone who is connected uh, with a strong faith, um, and yet this guy has dismissed his faith and he's practicing uh, a kind of sorcery and... Um, dabbling in the occult. Um, thirdly, it's actually the Gentile Roman who's calling to hear the word of God and not someone who knows uh, the history of God and his people. It's not the Jewish person who is seeking God's message. It's the Gentile. 
Now, Bar Jesus would have been on a pretty sweet deal. He has a good job, he has a great pay, he lives in luxury, he's by the side of the Prime Minister of the island of Cyprus. He has significant power, he lives in luxury, and he had a great reputation. He was known uh, for being able to advise the Prime Minister. If you're into politics of the last couple of years, think about he's a, like a combination of a palm reader and Peter Credlin. He's, he's that kind of real, um, you know, hand in glove with the Prime Minister. But knowing that the gospel message is going to do damage to him personally, it's going to dilute his power, it's going to take away his uh, position, it's most likely going to turn the governor against him and say, you know what, I'm not going to, not going to seek your advice anymore, I'm going, to, I'm going to turn to God for wisdom. Knowing that that's the likely scenario, he does what most of us do. He acts out of self-interest and he opposes that which threatens his own interest. He opposes that which threatens his own interest. And so Paul, with the power of the Holy Spirit, he looks him dead in the eyes and he calls him out for what he is. And he says, you know what? You're not the son of Jesus. You've got no connection to Jesus. You're a son of the devil. Wow. Very, very strong words. And he says, and you're not just opposing me, you're opposing God. And I'm going to show it to you. God's hand is against you and people like you. This is not a wise move that you're making here. And he pronounces judgment to demonstrate God's power over Bar-Jesus' magic. And the proconsul, when he sees this demonstration of God's power, he believes. He says, yeah, you know what? This is the real deal. I've been consulting with a fake all this time. He's amazed at the power of the Lord. Now note that he doesn't believe in God's power. It's not the miracle that he's placing his faith in. It says he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. The miracle added weight to the message. The miracle was not in the message itself. He's not seeking access to some new kind of magic. He actually says, you know what? This message is proven to be true by the demonstrable power of God. So what is it here that we have to take away? Uh, to apply from this experience of Paul and Barnabas. Because without a takeaway, we're not going to get very far. I have a handful of things that I reckon we can can take away. Here they are. First of all, opposition. It's not a new thing. Some of us are talking about the shift that we've seen in our culture and its attitude toward the church. Some of us now in Australia and uh, are starting to talk about the opposition you know, the ridicule that we face when we say, yeah, you know what, I'm not into gay marriage. The ridicule that we face when we say, oh, actually, I have moral standards that are different to that. Gay marriage is not the, the one big issue, I've got to say. There's a whole stack of it out there. But opposition was there in the first church. It's been around ever since. In fact, it was around before then, too. I've got to say, in Australia, I think we've had a pretty comfortable run for a long time. But as I listen to the stories in the book of Acts, one thing comes clear to me 
that God's message, the gospel, can spread with power despite opposition. In fact, does it not prove all the more true to our hearts when God's message spreads despite opposition? Do we not then learn that that's actually God's power doing it and not us? In that sense, I think our position is kind of good. It might be painful, but I think it's beneficial. Opposition is inevitable. The words of Jesus say this, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. Jesus said, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. They didn't just kind of persecute Jesus. They didn't just give him a rough time. They actually murdered him. I'm not feeling quite that persecuted yet. I don't know about you. Persecution might be motivated by self-interest. Some people will actually be feeling threatened by the message of the gospel. Sometimes it'll be motivated by the message, uh, by, sorry, by opposition to God himself. Some people have established themselves as enemies of God. Some people profess to be anti-God. That will motivate some people. Sometimes it'll come from unexpected sources. Some people whose background or name or claims or position or experience would suggest that they would, might be pro-God and not anti. A little bit like by Jesus. If you'd read, you know, uh, the proconsul had a Jewish assistant and they consulted with the Jewish assistant, you would, you would kind of expect that the Jewish assistant would listen to the gospel, but no, he was very, very anti Another thing that we can learn from this is that opposition is not a sign of the wrong path. Sometimes, and I mentioned this briefly when we talked last, last week about God's will, sometimes we see trouble and opposition as a sign of some kind. And yeah, I think sometimes it can be a sign. It's probably a sign that you're troubling the enemy. Opposition actually might be a sign that you're starting to stir up spiritual uh, spiritual activity, you're actually engaging in the battle. As I read, I read a, a small um, excerpt from a book that said, Christians ought to think that the world is a battleground, not a playground. I thought that was a powerful little snip. A battleground, not a playground. Opposition forces us to get real. In fact, opposition, again, kinds of, uh, kind of weeds out the, uh, the maybes amongst us, does it not? It's easy for me to be a, a professing Christian. It's easy for me to come here uh, on a Sunday and join with you and sing and uh, give my gifts to the offering uh, to listen to a sermon. Uh, but if I was risking arrest, would I still come? Would you still come? What if I was just risking my job? What if I was risking my reputation what if showing up here on a Sunday meant that I was going to be the subject of Facebook slander for weeks and weeks? Would I still come? That kind of opposition actually would weed out the wishy-washies from the others. Lucas, your battery's got 5% left. I hope it makes it. (laughs) 
Opposition comes in various forms and from various places. On this particular occasion, it's come from a Jewish sorcerer, a kind of demonic opposition, if you like. Wow, he's amazing, this guy. How did you get my slides? I didn't even give them to you. Other times it comes from religious places. Opposition to the gospel actually can come from religious places. Jesus saw that. God's very people who had the message and the history of God and his dealings with man. And yet they were the ones who were so fiercely opposed that they murdered the Son of God. Other times it'll come uh, from political places, like the Romans, like the government, like your local council. Sometimes it comes in different forms, maybe physical opposition, maybe restraining your liberties, what you can and can't say, where you can and can't go. These guys experienced stoning, exclusions. They were banned from cities. They had attempts made on their life. They had public accusations made against them. They were shamed, they were mocked. Their reputations were torn apart. Another principle I think we read, though, is that opposition can and will be overcome, whether it's now or whether it's later. God has said, I will not be mocked. I will not be defeated. Jesus himself said, I have overcome the world. Not I will overcome the world. I have overcome the world. I'm already more powerful. I will have my way. My plan will come about. God's sovereign plan, which we know has an ultimate end in Christ ruling over all things, it will come about. Lastly, I think one of the principles is very useful for us to remember. We need God. When we face opposition, we need God. Our natural reactions to opposition are not always going to be the appropriate ones. I cannot face and defeat opposition in my own strength. And worldly wisdom, regardless of how intelligent I am, actually that will not give me the power to deliver the gospel message and defeat opposition. I am not the answer. You are not the answer. It is God's power which is the answer. I find this very helpful uh, as a reminder to me because uh, in those times when I face opposition, I feel like I'm trying to do God's work and I come up against a barrier, I get actually quite angry. And I get angry at the person. And a little bit like Paul, I want to hurl some... uh, spiritual expletives in their face. But I'm not always sure that that's God's anger burning inside me. It's usually just uh, my own personal, hey, I had a plan and my plan was to achieve certain things and you're in the way. Usually doesn't come out in such rational, polite language. And it's God who actually gives power to his message. Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit when he confronted this guy. Luke's major point here is contrasting Paul's access to God's power versus Bar-Jesus and his magic. God was powerfully able to demonstrate his superiority in that circumstance. And part of us exercising our faith, people, 
part of us exercising our faith is putting ourselves out there where we're in a situation where actually it will be God who delivers and not us. The Bible is actually full of these kind of people. They're not heroes. They're people who put themselves out there waiting for God to deliver. Think about just this short list, and you could go on about this forever. Noah, building a boat in the middle of the desert. He really was putting himself out there. Elijah, when he confronted the prophets of Baal, and he doused his altar with gallons and gallons of water. Not petrol, water. I would have gotten the petrol. David, when he stepped out with a slingshot and a handful of stones to fight a giant with armour. Gideon, when he took a small handful of men to fight a huge army in the middle of the night. Joshua, when he was told to yell at a city in order to defeat it. Rahab, when she made a decision to risk her life to save others. Daniel, when he stood firm on what he believed, regardless of the law that he knew had just come in. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, in their confrontation with a supreme ruler who had their lives in his hands. The list goes on. It just goes on. I, I challenge you to go through look, looking through the Bible and count how many times you can find people who put themselves out there and wait for God to deliver. Those people are called overcomers. Not perfect people, but they choose to lean on God rather than come up with something themselves. When the going gets tough, they decide not to quit, but they cling to that one thing that they know is stronger than they are. I'm going to get emotional for a second, but where's Inesta? I couldn't help but think of you. I pray that this is true for you. First John 5, 4 and 5 says this, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But it's he who believes in that Jesus is the Son of God. So here's some questions for you and me. Am I like by Jesus? Am I really spiritual, but I'm not actually seeking Jesus? Am I displaying that kind of irony where I'm the one who comes to church, but it's my non-Christian friends who are actually asking the questions? What is my approach to opposition, generally? What is it that drives my opposition to things? Is it self-interest? Am I actually acting out of fear? Am I feeling threatened by things? Sometimes when we oppose things, even in the name of Christianity or in the name of God, sometimes what's motivating me is not God's purposes, but it's actually my own insecurities. What opposition am I facing right now? And who do I think is going to overcome it? What's my plan to overcome it? Is, am I scheming? Am I come up, coming up with my own solutions? Or am I going to put myself out there and ask God to prove himself?
How can I exercise my faith in that way, to put myself out there in a way that allows God to demonstrate his power? Well, that kind of deals with the first example uh, in these two stories. And then we come to the second example, which is wildly different. Paul and Barnabas have left Cyprus. They've gone up to uh, a place called Perga in Turkey, and then they've gone inland, and they've gone to another place called Antioch. It's not the same Antioch that they left. Um, It's a little bit like Croydon. There's one over there, and there's one in Sydney somewhere, and there's one in Queensland somewhere. Um, And it seems that this town that they're in, Lystra or Lystra, depending on uh, whether you use Lysterine or Listerine, it doesn't seem to have a synagogue. So Paul is preaching outside in the open air, and it doesn't, we're not sure really how far he got into his message. It doesn't seem like he got very far um, because of the way the people react. But a lame man, a lame from birth, never has walked in his life. A lame man is listening, and as he's listening, Paul locks eyes with him, and he sees that this lame man has the faith to be healed. How he judged that, I don't know. It's probably one of those, again, one of those times when he's filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is guiding his decisions and his words. And so he says to this lame man, he just eyeballs him, he says, stand on your feet. And he does. Wow. I've never seen anything like that. I've got to say, I've got to tell you, I've, I've seen people come back from the brink of death. I've seen uh, people... Um, recover from illness that was supposedly not recoverable. I've never seen someone with a permanent disability be healed like that, ever. I would love to one day. I think that would change something in me. But the reaction from the crowd doesn't have the same reaction that we've seen in other healings. Remember when uh, Peter and uh, John went to pray and they met a lame man on the way? Um, and they, this lame man is healed, and what does he do? What does the song say he did? He went walking and leaping and praising God. That was the reaction of this man. This crowd's reaction is very, very different. Now, there was an ancient legend in this area, and the ancient legend uh, was this, that Zeus and Hermes, who were two of the 12 Olympian Greek gods, not Olympian as in Olympics, but uh, the Greek gods, 12 of them. Zeus and Hermes had, according to this legend, once came down to earth in human form. Seeking hospitality, they had been rejected by everyone except a poor elderly couple who not only took them in, but they actually gave up their shelter for their two guests. And the gods rewarded them, this elderly couple, by transforming their cottage into a magnificent temple, and they punished their inhospitable neighbours by sending a severe flood. Out of fear for that not happening ever again, the crowd sees this amazing demonstration of miraculous power and they say, they're back! It's Zeus and Hermes! And they label Barnabas, Zeus, because Barnabas seems to be the leader out of the two, and Hermes is Paul. He seems to be the chief speaker. Now, these two gods, Zeus was actually the first of the gods, the father of all the Greek gods. He's a very imposing figure. He's uh, the god of the sky. He controls lightning, and he often uses it as a weapon, according to their mythology. Zeus is the king of Mount Olympus. 
and he imposes his will on all of the other gods. That's Zeus. Hermes was one of the twelve. He was the god of trade, thieves, uh, travellers, sports, athletes and border crossings. And he was also the guide to the underworld. That's quite a big portfolio um, for a Greek god. Uh, It sounds like one of those junior ministers who gets dumped with all things no one else wants. Uh, But they exclaim this in their own language. And Paul and Barnabas, it seems, are not apparent uh, or not, don't seem to be aware of what's going on right now. Now, this has happened to me. When I was in Zambia, I was uh, 19 years old. I was ushered into someone's home, and unbeknownst to me, there was something going on. There was an agenda. Uh, I was seated next to a young girl who was a year younger than me. I was, uh, they were sort of, everyone else sat separately, and they all started looking at us and nodding and smiling and looking at my dad and making gestures and, uh, and sort of remarks in their local language. And it wasn't after a few minutes until... It was after a few minutes I realised what was actually happening. They were trying to set me up. That was when I decided I wanted to leave. Paul and Barnabas have this same experience. The crowd becomes excited and they start talking about things, but Paul and Barnabas don't know what they're saying. And it's not until this, uh, the priest of the temple of Zeus comes in uh, with oxen to try to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas that they realise what it is that's happening. And now we can draw a stark contrast between the reaction of Herod when he had the praise of men and was offered uh, recognition as deity and Paul and Barnabas when the same offering is made to them. Paul and Barnabas actually tear their clothes as a sign of absolute anguish that such a blasphemous thing would even be contemplated. What are you doing? We would say, what the heck? Paul goes on and says, hey, you are actually worshipping useless things. We've got a message about the one true God. The God who sends rain and crops and gives you food and he's the author of everything that brings joy in your life. This can happen to us. It can happen to us in one of two ways. I reckon sometimes we get caught up in this and we actually promote other people to a status that is not proper. And I think sometimes we allow us, others to do that for us. When publicity is offered for something remarkable, achieved, when thanks or praise uh, for something that has been done, sometimes we start to think highly of ourselves. In fact, sometimes what I think about myself is informed by what other people will say to me in about five or ten minutes. That actually is not God's will for me. Sometimes we do it to others. Chuck Swindle says this. Tim Keller says that. Did you hear what John Piper says about such and such? That's the truth. Actually, it's God who has the truth. Yes, sometimes those people are God's messengers, but it's not them that we follow. It's actually Jesus that we follow. We do it to rock stars and celebrities. Someone who's really good at basketball all of a sudden has to pass comment about something really complex and political. And we listen to their view as if it's really well informed and, and uh, important. Actually, you know what? That person's really good at shooting hoops. Not necessarily anything else. Please don't do that to me. I'm really good at some things. Don't ask me about other stuff. 
There was no doubt a temptation by Paul and Barnabas to accept this praise, this fame, this power. In fact, on one view, they could have used that position, that elevated, powerful political and spiritual command that they were being offered, to use it, and they could have said, you know what, let's allow them to do this because we will be in a position of huge influence in this place. And from here we can spread God's word. But no, integrity says more than that. In fact, these people knew that the God that they served was more important than anything that was being offered to them because God is a jealous God. He says, don't bow down and worship anything or anyone else. There is only one person who deserves credit for the good that we can achieve. Only one person is praiseworthy. Only one person is entitled to claim divinity Neither you or I are that person. And it wasn't Paul or Barnabas either. Look at the response of, of people that we sometimes revere. Do we not? The fathers of the church, the pillars of the faith. We hold these people up in high esteem and yet when that was done to them right now in this example, in this story, when we look at their experience of being offered that Adulation, that amazing, that prestige and that recognition, they turned around and they said, no, 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 no. No thanks. It is God who is amazing, not me. Don't be in awe of us. Be in awe of God. We are just men like you. I'm just a normal guy like you. I just happen to have a message that you might like to hear. And isn't that the story of the gospel? Sometimes people think they're Christians. Oh, a bunch of good people. I'm not, I'm not a good person, so I'm not going to be like them. Christians are actually people who've realized that we're bad people. Because it's God who's good, and it's not me. It's God who can do it, not me. It's God who saves, not me. And Paul and Barnabas rush out into the crowd and said, it's about God, this is not about us. We have a message about God. This is not about me. So, what can we take away from this? First of all, I think sometimes we too readily seek the praise of people. What's my response when people offer me praise? Do I acknowledge the God that made me, skilled me, loves me, saves me, protects me, blesses me? Do I acknowledge that God or do I act like Herod? A couple of chapters ago when someone said, oh, listening to you is like listening to the voice of God. And he said, oh, thanks very much. What does my natural response to praise and adoration, what does that say about the state of my heart? Do I too readily idolise others? Do I lift people up because of my adoration of them and what they stand for? Do I elevate them to a place that is too high do I say things like well Henry Cloud says this instead of Jesus says that in what situation do I need to be reminded that it's God who's good it's not me it's God who will do it it's not me it's God who saves not me church we are not the message God is the message The gospel is the message. It 
is what carries the power of God. You and I need to lean on that. We need to be willing to put ourselves out there. It's scary. It's kind of like stepping out of the boat. But if we're going to walk on water, we've got to be willing to step out of the boat. I would challenge us, all of us, to be in awe of God, not in awe of some other Christian person. Because it is he who's good, not us. It is he who will achieve his plans, and it is he who can save. Thanks, music guys.